Welcome to 15 Minutes of Mental Toughness with your host, Dr. Rob Bell. Dr. Rob interviews expert coaches, executives, and athletes about mental toughness and their hinge moments. The hinge. It connects who we are with who we've become, and it only takes one. And now for your host, Dr. Rob. That's what I mean about the story. I think we all create stories um, and we want to be the story of our own life. We don't want those stories to run how we show up. And that goes back to intention. I think if we can create our own stories and and I love the, the phrase um, up until now, like I've thought a certain way up until now, but that doesn't mean that's how I need to think going forward. And so as I've talked about my relationship with food, it's still a, a work in progress because up until a certain point, I really did think like I have the freedom to eat the full buffet and that's great. And the reality is like, that's actually not the truth for me. That's not actually what I respect. Hey, this is Dr. Rob Bell. If you want a free ebook, the best mental toughness quotes that will make you better, just text Dr. Rob Bell, that's D-R-R-O-B-B-E-L-L, to this number, 33444. You'll get a download right away. Our guest today is the founder of Strong Skills, so he provides executive coaching, mental performance coaching. He's a speaker and consultant to elite organizations, performers, teams. Uh, he's worked with CEOs, professional athletes in the NBA, NHL, MLS, and, and D1 college athletics. He's also worked with the Federal Reserve, it's pretty cool, Department of Homeland Security, uh, Hilton, YPO, which is Young Presidents Organizations, and, and tons of others. He has a weekly podcast, which that link is going to be in there. I highly recommend I think he does a really great job of interviewing elite high performers, and his podcast is called Intentional Performers. His new book is called Shift Your Mind, Nine Mental Shifts to Thrive in Preparation and Performance. Our guest lives in Bethesda, Maryland with his wife, Robin, and his two kids, Marin and Braden. Really excited about our guest today to get into it. Uh, fellow mental coach, our guest today is Brian Levinson. Brian, thanks for joining us, buddy. Rob, one of the things you didn't mention is that you are one of those high performers on my podcast. So uh, this is going to be fun. This is going to be interesting. I'm curious to see where it goes. And it's a little strange being on the other end of the mic, but I've been doing a lot of it lately uh, for the book. So I'm excited to chat with you. And it's cool to hear in my bio my kids' names because – uh, it's often left out. And I was talking to someone about this yesterday. Once you have kids, your whole worldview just changes and your lens with which you see the world, it really does drastically change, at least for me. And they are just a massive part of my life for better, or for worse. Sometimes <laughs> it's it, being a dad is hard, um, but wouldn't want it any other way. And those two kids, uh, we're, we're very fortunate that they're healthy right now and that they are just hopefully going to contribute to society in a positive manner. At least they're contributing to our household. So it's cool to hear their names in the introduction. Absolutely, man. Well, I think you got to do your research, man. So um, and again, you're somebody I respect. Now, we always talk about like our why changes, you know, and I think when you have kids, your why just automatically changes and it becomes just all about them and being a model for them. It does. And I think one of the things that I've had to grapple with, and I think I mentioned it in the book, is – 
not just focusing on them, but also focusing on ourselves. And I think we see this with leaders as well, where we talk about servant leadership and, and it's good, but we can't serve others if we don't first serve ourselves. And I know you are big into fitness and do all kinds of crazy ultras and play golf. And, um, I think one of the things I've done during COVID is I try to play golf once a week. Uh, just be with my buddies, my wife, um, is, is very gracious in, in allowing me to do that. But I think it's important that we're selfish first so that we can be selfless. And, uh, that's been a lesson that I've had to learn over the last couple of years with kids. I, there was a moment where my wife looked at me and I was sort of ripping and running professionally and, um, maybe not taking enough time to take care of myself. And she just said, when was the last time you did something for yourself? And I was like, yeah, it's, it's been a while. And, and from that point, I've been very intentional and conscientious around making sure I take care of myself so that I can take care of the kids. So, yeah. Love it, man. So obviously on our podcast, we talk about hinge moments. And I want to start with that. I want you to tell us, tell us your hinge moment about how you got into the field and what was that moment um, when you knew either it planted the seed or you knew this is what you wanted to do? Very clear for me. Uh, I, for a program I was in, we actually had to talk about watershed moment and I actually talked about this moment instead you, of, you can use a different term on this yeah, one. Yeah. Hinge, hinge, we'll call it a hinge moment. Uh, and I love that idea of a hinge and, and I've heard you reference it in books and the idea of a hinge, I'm looking at my door right now and, and how that hinge really does decide if something is open or closed and, and we'll, if we go through it or not. So for me, I went to the Cheesecake Factory in 2006 and I ate a lot of food. I probably ate more than I should have, which is what you do when you go to the Cheesecake Factory. And I met with a woman named Julie Ellian and Julie was a family friend, but not someone who I really knew that well. She was one of those people that, you know, there might be a barbecue and she might be there and we chat a little bit, but she was closer to my parents' age and I didn't really know her all that well. I'd heard she had a cool job, but I didn't really know much about it. She said, Brian, I want to take you to lunch and tell you about what I do. And at that time, Rob, I was a lost puppy. I graduated from college, was working in sales, and had no vision for where I was going career-wise. So I was doing a lot of coffees and lunches with anyone who would tell me about what they were doing for a living. And my conversation with Julie that day, I'll never forget, was remarkable. She had me close my eyes at one point and say, I bet you could explain a lot of the different things that are going on around us. And I was like, yeah, I can. Like I am very visual. I'm very perceptive. And I've always sort of been that way. And then she talked about working with elite golfers and pro basketball players and all these different athletes. And at the time she was working with Phil Mickelson, but it wasn't public. So, I mean, when I say elite golfers, top two in the world, <laughs> um, and Julie, was working with a bunch of other golfers and it was pretty confidential. She was keeping a low profile, but she said to me, Brian, I think you'd be great at this work. I think this is a growing field and I really enjoy the work that I do. And honestly, in all the conversations I had with all of the different people, that conversation with Julie was the most seamless. It was the one that flowed. It felt natural. And at the time I wasn't all that interested in going back to school so I continued to work in sales and I stayed in touch with Julie and, uh, along the way she allowed me to shadow her when she'd work with a golfer locally. 
She helped me figure out an online class that I could take to learn more about sports psychology. And she really mentored me. And if it wasn't for Julie and that conversation, I don't really know what I would be doing professionally. But when you find the thing that you're meant to be doing, it's a pretty cool feeling. And so she helped me figure out where to go to grad school and, and so on and so forth. And when I graduated grad school, she helped me build my practice. I'm forever grateful and indebted to Julie. But that lunch really shifted and changed the trajectory of my career and absolutely is a hinge moment because I think if that lunch doesn't happen, we probably are never chatting with each other. So um, it's pretty simple for me and pretty easy that I look at that lunch and and look at what's transpired since then. And it's pretty amazing to think about. One, one person, one moment or one lunch, man, makes all the difference in our lives. When, when was the moment then, Brian, that uh, you were like, I'm this, I'm, I know this is what I was meant to do. Sure. I think it's probably, I'm going to give two that, were actually like moments of imposter syndrome and uncertainty and nervousness and anxiety. I, um, I'm sure there were moments before that in grad school where I really felt like it was, but I remember giving a talk to a professional sports team and giving a talk to a, a division one football team, the professional sports team. It was a planned conversation around visualization. And so I did that talk and I was in the locker room and I was nervous as all hell. <laughs> like, uh, probably had trouble sleeping the night before, but I did it and I did a good job and I got feedback afterwards that I did a good job. And so that's a moment where I was like, okay, like I can give a talk to these guys who are playing at a very, very high level and I can do a good job. And then the division one football team was a little different because I was at practice and the head coach huddled the guys up before they left the field and said, Brian, give us a few words. Boom. And, and boom, like here I am in front of 105 dudes that are way bigger, faster, stronger than I ever will be and take their job really seriously. And it's a big, big football program. And I had to perform. And so there, there, those two moments because one I prepared like crazy for, and knew what I wanted to talk about and I got good feedback. And the other was just, you know, you're here, you got to just go do it. And both of those moments were scary and adrenaline producing. Um, but when you have a room and you're able to make eye contact with people and connect with them, it, it's pretty powerful. And so that would be on the group side. And then on the one-on-one side, that was pretty early for me. Like even when I was in grad school, and I was able to have conversations with people. That is something that I think I've been doing my whole life. And it's less of a performance and more of creating space for people and listening. Um, but I would definitely go to the Division One football team and the pro team just because in your head you big up those opportunities and you think that they are these crazy opportunities and you have to be special. And I think in those moments I realized I could just be me and just – do what I've learned and that I've been preparing for this for quite a long time. And Hey, this is Dr. Rob Bell. Our new book, Puke and Rally. It's not about the setback. It's about the comeback. It can be bought anywhere books are sold or go to the website pukeandrallybook.com. So, you know, if, if 
people listening aren't always mental coaches. So the, one of the worst times, what I think is, is after practice because, buddy, they're already thinking about leaving. So what was the topic that you brought up and, and how long did you go and what did you hit them with? I just talked about being where your feet are and being present. And they were getting ready for a game that week. And I, I think I said something like, hey, when we're competing and we're executing, we just need to play present. We need to be where our feet are. And we spend all this time preparing. And when it's time to get between the lines, we just need to let go of that preparation and be present. And uh, you know, I'm not sure how clean it came off. And, <laughs> but that was where I went to. And, you know, football guys have an energy to them. Um, football teams have an intensity to them. And, you know, I felt like it resonated even though it was really simple. I once ran into one of the football players uh, from that program as he was preparing for the NFL draft. And I knew the agent of another guy. So I went to this facility with the agent to go talk to one of his players. And one of the guys from this program saw me and came running up to me. And the agent asked, what do you remember about your work with Bryant? And I thought he was going to say something profound, like thoughtful, <laughs> philosophical, deep. And he said, Brian's energy, like the moment he walked into the locker room or the team, he always brought this energy to him. And I go back to Maya Angelou's quote of like, people won't remember what you say, but they'll always remember how you made them feel. And at the end of the day, that is something I'm proud of is that hopefully I'm more of an energy giver than an energy taker. And I influence that team in a positive way just by bringing a level of energy and care and passion to it. So, um, yeah, but that was, that was what I talked about was presence and being present, which are pretty similar words, presence and present. Um, I think we all, when we're competing, want to and should strive to have a presence of being present. Might be the title right there, buddy. <laughs> I mean, you're, you're, so your podcast, right? Intentional performance. I mean, you interview a lot of guests, man, a lot of high performers. Man, what are a couple of the, like significant takeaways, man, that you still hold on to from from that? The biggest is actually the title. So it started as I called it Beyond the Surface, and I thought it was a clever name to go beyond the surface with performers. I knew there was going to be a lot of athletes that I would interview and go like beyond the playing surface. Thirty sep- thirty episodes in, Rob. I realized that all of these people were very intentional with how they lived their lives, how they thought about their craft. And I was actually on vacation and I was sitting out looking over the water and it just hit me. I was like, this isn't about going beyond the surface. It's really about learning about how they're intentional. And, um, so that to me has been a massive takeaway is how thoughtful and intentional these elite performers are whether it's abstaining from alcohol or caffeine or writing notes to themselves and putting them in their wallet or using visualization or having mantras or spray painting their wall as a reminder of what, how they want to show up. There are all these little gems that I've heard them share about how they want to show up and, and being thoughtful in that regard. And certainly luck plays a role. Certainly gifts and talent plays a role but I've just been amazed by how intentional these people are from a variety of industries and how they set their mind, how they think about showing up. And uh, it's inspiring because I think intention is something that we're all capable of. And that's hopefully what people are taking away from the podcast is thinking about how they can be intentional with their relationships, with their profession, um, with their life. 
And uh, that's something that I am really trying to be thoughtful around is what am I intentionally doing and, and when do I lose my intention and, and how do I come back from that? In all your conversations, I mean, do you find it people that remove something to be more impressive than somebody that's like gaining something? Because, I mean, you said you remove alcohol, which isn't a problem for me, but remove caffeine. I'm like, dude, really? But, I mean, what do you, what do you think about that in terms of like, is it harder to remove something, take away that bad habit than it is to add something of, of value or that positive habit? It's a good question. I'm not sure. The guy who talked about not drinking any caffeine or alcohol is Josh Pastner, who's the head coach of Georgia Tech men's basketball. He said he started doing it from a young age and not for any religious reasons. Obviously, if you ever spend time with Mormons, a lot of them don't drink caffeine. Uh, he's not actually Mormon. He's actually Jewish. Um, but Josh just said, I liked knowing that I was doing something differently. And, and once I started doing it, I just kept doing it. And he always wanted to be thoughtful and intentional about what he's putting into his body. I can't speak for everybody. I think for me, it's, it's harder to take away. Um, it's harder. I I love to eat great food. I love to drink wine. For me, it's harder to remove those things. I, I did remove Coca-Cola. Like I remember when I graduated college, I was working at a uh, residential condo building and they had unlimited Coca-Cola. And so I would drinking like a Coke or two a day. And I was like, this is just isn't healthy. And I just remember one new year, I was like, I'm going to stop drinking soda. And ever since, I mean, I, every once in a while, maybe we'll have like a Coke zero, but I say once in a while, maybe once a year, I can't remember the last time I had a soda. So I don't know. What do you think about that? Is it easier to take away something um, or add something? What are your What are your thoughts on that? I think it's a lot harder to take something away because, well, it, and it's flipped. I mean, only when the pain of not getting what we want, you know, overrides that. You know what I mean? So when the pain is great enough, we will do whatever it takes. And that's where I look at a lot of times, man, it's being able to look at what is keeping me from that. And sometimes, it, you know, it's going to be that, that crutch, that demon that we have. And that's why I think taking that part away because it's removing the, I mean, there's some pleasure with it, right? Like I don't procrastinate, but people procrastinate. Why? Well, there's, there's a benefit to procrastinating. You know, people want to, you know, want to be under pressure or have more time, but when they can, it's only when I think that pain of procrastinating for an example overrides, you know, what they really want. That's why I think it's, it's a lot more difficult to take something away. I also think of self-determination theory and this idea of competence, relatedness, and autonomy. And the autonomy one's the one that I'll hit on. For me, I, I know that I've always valued autonomy. And I know I, it's one of the reasons I like working for myself. And I have worked for other people, and I don't really like that, to be honest. And so I, I actually did some deep work on this when it came to eating food and exercising. Because I've always been healthy enough that you know, and not overly obese. Like I've always been okay, but I have, I could be more fit. I certainly am never going to, I don't think I'm ever going to be Rob Bell fit, but I, I, I could lose 10 pounds. Right. And it would be really good for me. For some people, weight is not correlated to health, but for me, I sort of have this, I know that if I lost 10 pounds, it would take care of a lot of different numbers as the doctor would say. And I remember thinking about this as I was getting coached and it was around autonomy and I had this story in my head that eating whatever the hell I wanted 
was me being autonomous. Exercising or not exercising was me using autonomy. And it was actually the opposite because it's very rare that I was happy that I ate that donut. And it was very rare that I was happy that I didn't exercise. And so I've, I've been working on this and it's still a work in progress, but actually thinking that my autonomy is eating well, my autonomy is exercising and I still have a ways to go on that front, but it's a mind shift that I think would make me a healthier person, which is ultimately what I do want. That is, I want to have the freedom to abstain from the donut. I want to have the freedom to work out because I know that it benefits me. But I think many of us, and certainly I can speak for myself, I have had this story that the autonomy is eating whatever I want when I want to, drink when I want, um, exercise when I want. And I actually think it's a misnomer and it's a misconception. And for me, that, that was pretty eye-opening when I started to realize that autonomy is actually doing the thing that I want to do. Um, and I think that is another way of looking at it. So it's not necessarily abstaining, but it's actually choosing what I did want to do um, and stepping into that rather than taking away. You know, you're saying the self-determination theory. I'm a big fan of that. I think with when we're exercising that autonomous autonomy, we're, we're also exercising in the confidence as well, right? And um, I dig it, man. You said something there about a story that we tell ourselves. I mean, elaborate on that piece about, because I don't think a lot of people are even really aware of the story that they're telling themselves and how it just kind of all starts with that. I think about food. Let's just go to food. I grew up in a house with, two brothers, dad, uh, a, a mom. So a lot of testosterone and not like crazy, but we competed at everything. We fought, we went at it. And it wasn't a house where it was like a finish your plate house. My mom or dad, they weren't like, you need to eat your vegetables and finish your plate. I didn't grow up in that way. But I think about my dad, we called him GD, which stood for garbage disposal. And in the sense that he could clear the plate and eat a lot of food. And I think about when I'm in college, like it was cool to eat a whole pizza. Like Domino's used to run the five, five, five deal and you get, you know, a full thing of Domino's and eat it. And you're, you're like a man if you ate a lot and you're less than if you actually don't. Um, and so when I say a story, I think along the way I cultivated a story of what it meant to be like masculine. And I'm even using a different voice as I say that. And how ridiculous is that? Like, why wouldn't being a vegan be seen as like a great thing for a man to be if they're taking care of their health so they could live longer? And a lot of athletes are, are vegan and trying to live healthy. And I'm not saying I'm pro-vegan, but I'm just saying the notion of that, like, it's almost as if we've had a story that you're a wimp or you're a wuss if you don't eat a steak. Uh, and I, I like, I'm a big Joe Rogan fan. I think it's awesome, but it's like, Oh, he's hunting and he's eating the elk and he's, he's, we, we create this story of what it means to be masculine or a man. And to me, I, I, I am no different. Like I have think, I think I've created those stories that, Oh, I'm going to eat the whole steak and then give me another steak and I'll eat that too. And then I feel sick and then I, I feel awful and I'm not healthy. And that's not actually being tough or smart or, or strong. And so that's what I mean about the story. I think we all create stories um, and we want to be the story of our own life. We don't want those stories to run how we show up. And that goes back to intention. I think if we can create our own stories and, and I love the, the phrase, 
um, up until now. Like I've thought a certain way up until now, but that doesn't mean that's how I need to think going forward. And so as I've talked about my relationship with food, it's still a, a work in progress because up until a certain point, I really did think like I have the freedom to eat the full buffet and that's great. And the reality is like, that's actually not the truth for me. That's not actually what I respect. Um, so I, I, I hope that that makes sense. Cause nobody's eating buffets now. That's true too. It's uh, it's not, it's, it's unhealthy for a lot of reasons. What, so what was life. the, what was the shift in story? Like what's the shift in story for you when it comes to food that, that you feel you need to make? Yeah. That I love avocado and I do that. I love eating a salad. I turned to my wife the other day, we had bagels and I said, I think I'm at a point where I'd rather have a quinoa bowl or I'd rather have like, you know, a pokey bowl. Like I feel better. And like, I like the taste of it, but for a while I just said I didn't and it wasn't actually the truth. Now don't get it twisted. I love a cheesesteak. I love a burger and fries the way it tastes. Sure. Um, like I'm, I'm not going to sit here and say that I don't do those things, but I would say more often than not, like the juice is not necessarily worth the squeeze. And so I'd rather eat healthy, feel good, find some tasty stuff. I think there's enough taste, at least where I live, there's plenty of tasty healthy options. And so, um, continuing to remind myself of that is difficult because for the first 30 years of my life, that wasn't how I thought it really wasn't. Um, so it's, it's still a work in progress, Rob. I dig that man. Your book. So you talk about even with this, I mean, the habits and, and you know, you talk about habits inside your book amongst a lot of other things. Um, what was your process for getting it written? Because one of the things that I find to be impressive is you have 313 references that are in there and you cite a lot of different stories, a lot of different research. And I, I dig that. I appreciate that because I know then there is a lot of rabbit holes that you must go down to find these. Um, but tell us, like, what was the process for, for writing the book? It was hard. Uh, so the the formal process started four years ago. But the informal process probably started when I was a kid. I mean, I think the, the, this book, at least for me, was an amalgamation of all the people that I've interacted with in my life, all the life experiences that I've had. It's not an autobiography by any stretch of the imagination, but it's their stories and it's their research. And it's me basically trying to synthesize it, gather all that information, tell their stories, and use this framework uh, that hopefully is, is useful for for people. I also had a message of the day that I ran for seven straight years where I would just share an article, a quote, research, a video, a podcast. So I think that helped me write the book because I had a database of information. Obviously, I, I read quite a bit. I listen to podcasts. I watch TED Talks. I watch documentaries. So I'm obsessed with this idea of performance and, and how do we unlock our potential. Um, so to me, that informal process helped the formal process and the formal process was still brutal. I also hired a writing coach because I felt like I'm not a writer. I am somebody who works with people and I'm a decent writer. I thought I could become a really good writer if I had a writing coach help me say, hey, Brian, you need more research in this chapter. Or is there a story from your personal life that you could share here? And so those types of questions and having a writing coach who could see the whole thing 
and I could just focus on executing was what made me perform better. And I actually hired a writing coach at first that I struggled with and we did not work well together. And at one point he's a great guy. He said to me, Brian, do you think you want to work with someone else? And I was so grateful that he said that because I actually did. And I was trying to make it work and it just wasn't working. And when I switched to this other coach, she, her name's Larry Bishop. Larry could see the whole picture and she allowed me to play in between the lines. And I actually think that's what great coaches do. They can see a bigger picture. They can be strategic and thoughtful and their players or their athletes, they just have to focus on executing and they don't have to necessarily worry about the bigger grand scheme on, on what's going on and they can just execute. So once I started working with Larry, I really was able to just flow and write. Uh, and then I would create, um, goals for myself. So once we got the framework set, we knew what we were playing with. I would say, all right, I've got to write a chapter every month or, or whatever it might be. And I would set those deadlines for myself because you can go crazy over analyzing and a book is never finished. I'm looking at your books over your shoulders. They're never done. And there's going to be stuff in this book that I look back on five years from now. And I'm sure I disagree with and, and regret. But for me, I really wanted to make sure that I dotted all my I's, crossed all my T's and put something out there that I was excited about. And uh, I, I think I did that. I think you did too, man. It's uh, Each chapter, it, it lays out, but it follows a sequential order in terms of the story and then backing that up and then, you know, kind of shifting your mind for it. So, I mean, I, I dig it. You know, I always say this, like there's no good writing. There's only good rewriting. Mm. You know, it's only going back and looking at it and be like, man, well, I don't even know what I was trying to say here. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? And that's tough, man, because you, I mean, you write about it in your book. I mean, it's a lonely process. It is. I was fortunate. I had um, editors. I had, uh, as I said, a writing coach. And then my publisher was great along the way. And I, I'm somebody who give me the task. I'll go do it. I'm not going to hold back. Like, I'm not somebody who's hesitant or fearful. I'm like, all right, I'm just going to go. But I need those people to tell me, hey, you went a little off base here. I can go and then go off course real quick. And so they really brought me back. They kept me organized. Um, so it was really a team effort. And um, I'm grateful that I had a team because you're right. It is a lonely process. And my wife was also a massive part because I would ask her, hey, what do you think about this? Or what do you think about this? How do you think about using this word or that word? My friends helped me with the book cover, the title. I, I used everybody that I could in my network. Um, you know, I talked to a lot of authors about the process. I'm sure we talked about it at some point and I'm really fortunate to be surrounded by incredible people and I'm not too big to go to them because I, I'm very, very, very aware of my weaknesses. Like I, I have some, some, some big weaknesses. And I tried to surround myself with people that, who had strengths that were not necessarily mine. And they've been really helpful in the journey. See, I, I went one hour every day. So when I would kind of get the idea and I didn't know where that hour was going to go, but I would always kind of shut it off then. Did you set out like, cause I know you said you, you had like a month and you want to get a chapter done. Like how, how did you approach that? I think we're different, right? You are somebody who I would say discipline is probably one of your calling cards. Would that be fair? I think that's fair. Yeah. <laughs> so Rob's very disciplined. I would not say discipline is one of my calling cards. Uh, I am creative. I'm innovative. I, um, come up with ideas. And so for me, I just wrote whenever I could. 
And sometimes it'd be late at night. Sometimes it'd be early in the morning. Sometimes I'd wake up at whatever hour and be like, oh, I'm going to write, <laughs> right? Sometimes I remember we had a holiday and I had one of these deadlines that I put for myself. And that's where I have discipline. So if I say I'm going to do something, I right. freaking do it. But I'm not as routine oriented as maybe I should be or maybe as others are. But I will make, it, it will get done and I will pour my heart into it. So I remember one time we were, we had a 20 minute drive to my parents' house for a holiday and I brought my computer in the car and my wife drove and I just worked on it for like 15 minutes in the car. So I, I did do, there is something else I did. I have a, uh, a mountain house. My family has a mountain house near where you grew up uh, in Thurmont, Maryland uh, on the same mountain as Camp David. There's no internet, there's no cell service. So I would go there and just hammer out content and, um, you know, not be distracted at all. Um, I'd go to my office and, and write, um, but I wouldn't say I was like an hour a day, be disciplined that way. And I think for me that allows me to just flow and I'd find time here and find time there. A lot of people ask me that question, Rob, they say, did you calendar it? Did you give yourself that space? Um, I did not. I just sort of found the time and found the space and then did create deadlines to make sure that I was going to finish it and not procrastinate. I dig it, man. I mean, again, there's a lot of, a lot of paths that we can take. I think it's just knowing like what we're good at on that. I wanted to ask, man, um, with, with Myers-Briggs, what, what's your Myers-Briggs? I took it a while ago. I don't remember. Are you at the very last one? Are you a J or a P? You remember that one? I know they get into extrovert that piece. I don't know. Didn't well, I, didn't I, didn't I, didn't I send you this quiz before we got on the podcast to, no. Be, to be ready. <laughs> I, I could search my computer. I bet I have it somewhere. So basically like the, the last letter is the only one I've ever paid attention to. I mean, you obviously you have the extrovert introvert, but Myers-Briggs, the very last letter is a J or a P. So if you're a J, you are a planner. You like structure. You need things planned. Even if my wife comes ask me, hey, Rob, do you want to get lunch? You know, I, I need to process it because that wasn't part of the plan. And so I'm a, I'm a big J, man, where it's like, look, I, I can have fun, but I need to know, hey, today's an off day that we're going to have fun. You know, I got to plan it. You know what I mean? It's like, if I'm going on vacation, boy, I want to have fun. But hey, here's the day we want to kind of do this. Are you the opposite of that? Are you total spontaneous? And uh, I, I probably would describe myself as a combination because I, I swear by my calendar. Um, I live by my calendar. Well, if you had a day off then, Brian, if you had a day off, is that – do you like the planet or do you like the, hey, whatever the wind takes us? It's both. Because I'm I, the reason I say both, maybe this is why I wrote the book that I wrote. I, like, there are times where I like it full. Like, when I'm going on vacation, so I'll give you an example. Uh, like, I do a ski trip with, with some friends and I plan it. And every night, this is where we're going to dinner. This is the plan. This is the mountain we're going to ski. Um, I, I love planning that stuff. I love creating itineraries. I love, I love doing that and I'm cool with scrapping it. Like I, I am not beholden to it. I am good with having a beach day where it's like, Oh, let's just see what happens. Um, so I think it depends. Like once again, if we were going to go travel somewhere, like I would plan all of the trip. And I would be cool with having a day where let's just see what happens. 
Um, I love spontaneity. I definitely enjoy spontaneity. I definitely get frustrated when people are not agile and are just like, no, this is the way we did it. I'm like, why? If we have a better way to do it, why not just adjust it and change it up? So that piece of me, I'm comfortable in that space. But for some things, I really like planning. Um, I really do. So I think it depends yeah. on what I'm doing. See, because I'm, I love spontaneity as well, man. You know, and if it's like, man, let's do it. I think you and I would probably do a trip pretty well together because as long as the outline's kind of there, I just need the outline of kind of what we're doing, you know. So that's that's why I kind of ask because with the book, man, it's like I just need to know when when I'm working out. Like when when's the run? When am I writing? Everything else will kind of work itself out. I just – that's just how my mind works, man. I've been, I've been around people that are really spontaneous, right? They wait to the last minute and they go fly somewhere. Um, they show up on my, like I get calls from people. Hey, I'm in DC. Like what? What do you, what do you mean you're in DC? Like I call ahead. I, I plan things out. Um, but I'm, I'm also someone, I, I think I'm comfortable with a little bit of that. I don't call it a mess or chaos, but like I, I am not, my mom is someone who's very much, everything's in order, everything's neat, everything's organized. So I'm probably similar to my mom in some ways, but then I'm sure there's an aversion to having a mom that's like that as well. And um, like, hey, I, my, my parents used to joke when we'd go on vacation, like I always said, well, when are we going to chill? Because yeah. my older brother who runs marathons and wakes up early and is very type A, my dad is someone who likes to go. They'd be like, all right, we're waking up at seven. We're out. And I'm like, we're on vacation. Like what, what's the point of this? Like, let's relax, let's chill. And so I think I have both of those. It's weird because some people think I'm really intense and then some others think I'm really chill. And I think I'm probably both. Like, I think I'm probably, I, I think humans hold more than one thing. And that's probably why I struggle with some of the personality assessments is because when I take those assessments, I always say it depends. Yeah. It depends on when and it depends on what I'm doing. Right. I'm not one way all the time. I have complexity. I have different sides to me and it really does depend what we're doing and, and when we're doing it and what the environment calls for. And so I think that's why intentionality is so important because if you're intentional, then you can say, Hey, this calls for X, this calls for Y, this is where I really need to bring this out. Let's bring that out. And then let's bring this out because that's what this calls for. So shift your mind, man. And one of the lines I really liked in there, analysis is a friend when preparing, but an enemy when performing. I really dug that line that you put in there, man. Elaborate on that piece for us. Paralysis by analysis is something we see. We notice if you study what choking is in sport, you'll see it's an overanalysis, an overload of information. We live in a world today that's very data heavy, analytics driven. You're a golf guy. I mean, Bryson DeChambeau, like the amount of analytics and data that he's inputting is remarkable. Yet when he's competing, it's about leveraging instinct. Now he uses the analysis that he has in his back pocket, but when he's actually hitting a putting stroke or hitting a golf ball, he's not analyzing in that moment. In that moment, he's shifting to instinct. And I believe if we use analysis and preparation, which is, it's really a detailed examination of the elements or structure of something. It's typically 
a basis for either discussion or interpretation. It's this process of analyzing and going through and combing through all the data and material. If we do that, I actually believe it, it provides us with instinct. It actually is where instinct is birthed and, and developed and, and it grows. The issue for a lot of us performers is that when we bring that analysis into the performance, that's when we overthink, we self-doubt, and that's where we can freeze up. So the ability to shift out of analysis and into instinct, like watching him do it is, is really cool because instinct is more about your body. Analysis is more about your mind. Instinct is it's this natural, innate impulse feel. We will watch quarterbacks in the NFL, and you can see Patrick Mahomes right now. Like he does all the analysis, but when he gets in the game, he feels it. All right, I'm going to move this guy. I'm going to slide a little on my left. I feel the pressure coming to the right. It's just a slide. Now, how does he know that pressure is coming from the right? He watched film. He studied. He studied, and then he has a cue. And then it's about letting his body do the work. And our mind can get in the way. We've both worked with clients who overthink and let their mind get in the way. So for me, it's about your preparation mind and your performance mind. And in the book, we talk about analysis and preparation and instinct and performance. And talk about, elaborate on that instinct piece, because you've mentioned it and I love it. It's about trusting your gut, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, the gut, it's the vagus nerve has been studied. Um, there's actually this second brain that we have in our gut that we can rely on to make decisions. And... Um, we do. We make decisions literally from our gut. And that to me is where great performance lies. It's more gut than it is head. Um, but the head is what gets you in the arena. It's the preparation piece. And so relying on gut, sometimes relying on heart, which is, I think, another piece of passion and effort. Um, but I'm sure when you're running ultras, like you don't always feel good. And if your mind uh, takes over in that moment, you're screwed because your mind's going to say, stop. Rob, stop. This hurts. Like, don't keep going. But you have to say to yourself, I've trained for this. I know I can do it. And then you just need to let your let your body keep going and and sort of sit, mind your mind and say, hey, mind, I know what I'm doing here. Like, let's just keep moving one foot at a time, one step at a time. And it's amazing what the human experience can be like if we have the resilience to let the body do what the body can do. Uh, and I think sometimes we forget how resilient our body is because uh, pain you mentioned pain earlier, like it absolutely goes, goes to the brain and the brain processes that pain. And, um, you know, it, it's going to react to help you survive in that moment. It's not going to help you live on the edge or help you do something that's never been done before. It's going to say, play it safe, man. Don't put yourself out there. And that's where the mind can really get in the way. That's where analysis can really get in the way. In a life situation, when there's a gut situation that may tell us, hey, why don't, you, why don't you reach out to Brian or why don't you reach out to somebody? I haven't thought about them in a while. And, and then, you know, why, um, I guess, why do we dismiss that sometimes? If, that, if we're supposed to trust our gut and we got that thought, why do we dismiss it? It's a great question that I haven't thought of. I'll, I'll take a couple shots at it. Um, trusting my gut on, on, on this. I think number one, sometimes we just get busy. Like sometimes we get an idea and then the day takes over. And we also have these cell phones now that are designed to keep us busy and grab our attention. So I think that's one. And then two, I think once again, when our mind then reacts to the gut, I think our mind will tell us to stay away from things that could hurt us. 
And so the mind will then say to the gut, hey man, what if you reach out to them and they don't want to hear from you? Or what if you embarrass yourself? Or I think about when someone passes away and our gut says we should reach out to them, but then our mind says, eh, what if you say the wrong thing? What if you um, make them feel worse? We get into the what is or the what ifs. And I, I know you talk about the shouldas, like don't should on yourself. I think it's the same type of thing. Like we get into the, oh, well, should I do this? I shouldn't do that. And we just miss the opportunity to just take the action. And I know for me, when someone passes away that's close to me, it almost never hurts to hear from somebody. But how many of us don't reach out because we're worried that we're going to say the wrong thing? So I think that's probably what takes over from keeping us from trusting our gut. It's because our analysis will, will think of all the reasons why something won't work rather than all the reasons why we should just trust it and, and, and then see what happens. Yeah. You know, it's interesting you say that, man, a little self-disclosure. So this morning, um, so sometimes like, the only thing I get at McDonald's is like their oatmeal, like in the morning. I wouldn't say it's the only time, but that's pretty much all I'll get there. And I got it this morning. And the one lady, you know how like a couple, they've got the two drive-through lines. So sometimes the cars get a little bit askew, right? Somebody's got a big order or something like that. And the one car that I knew was in front of me ended up being behind. So I just waited and just let her go through. I get up there. She paid for my oatmeal, you know, so it was two, two thirty-five or something. I thought it was really nice. I was like, wow, man, it felt so good and kind of waved her and stuff like that. Bam. I'm going to pay for the person behind me, right? I'm going to pay it forward. And then when I go to do it, it was $23. <laughs> and I'm like, you know, and this is, yeah, you know, and this is the moment where Some it's hot like, cakes and breakfast sandwich. And, and, and I didn't, and my mind got in the way. Right. And here's the thing, 23 bucks, I would never miss $23, you know, even today. But in that moment, I, I froze, right? Because and this is I typically froze. I was like, ah, oh, man, 23 bucks. Because I was in the mindset of 235 and thinking, oh, man, well, maybe, you know, maybe six, seven bucks. That would be nice. And it was like 23. And I was like, damn, is that an example, though? Because then my mind got in the way and, and totally got in the way of me just trusting it and trying so you to didn't do something pick, you didn't pick up the tab. I didn't pick that one up, man. Now, here's the thing. Here's the thing. I know in my heart of hearts I will make up for that in some other instance, but it's like in that moment. And so I don't want to come across here like I'm a miser when it comes to that, but it's like um, the fear of financial insecurity hits me very weird times. It's like, man, do I need three buckets of popcorn? Why can't me and my wife just share one? You know, it's like weird stuff. And it and it hit at that moment, but in it, it just that's where I froze. I was like, man, I'll just get somebody else's later. I think we all have different insecurities that hit us in different moments. And it's in those moments where I love like Viktor Frankl's idea of, you know, thoughts, space, action. We have these primary thoughts, we have these primary feelings, and we have space. And what we do with that space is where free will lives. And pretty much every religion believes in free will. They all believe we can decide to pay the 23 or, or not. And by the way, I'm not suggesting that that was a right decision or a wrong decision. But that space to me is what dictates how we show up in the world. 
right? Let's just use anger as an example. I feel anger. What stops me from punching someone in the face? Space. And the decision to punch someone in the face or not. We don't, so we're not animals and we don't live off instinct throughout our life. And it's actually what makes us special as human beings and separates us from animals is that we have the capacity to reflect. We have the capacity to not just rely on instinct. Yet, if you think about an elite performer, we call them animals. That dude's an animal because they're relying on instinct in that moment. And they're not worried about the analysis or the judgment or the evaluation. And so if we go to you in the McDonald's drive-thru, like the thought is that, yeah, that's something I want to do. The feeling is probably excitement if we went into your body in that moment. And then you get the tab and then it's sticker shock. And we could use this analogy for anything. And then it's, should I? Well, that's a lot of money. And then we don't necessarily act in the way that we want because there's a feeling, there's an emotion, and there's a thought that's telling you don't do that. And there's no space. And you, you may not have created space. I dig that, man. Very nice. I mean, you, you know, you talk about that in the book as well, man. Bending, bend to avoid breaking and like elaborate on that. I think agility, we were talking about agility earlier. Now, is it, is it agility or is it agility? <laughs> I call it agility. Okay. All right. <laughs> Spelled agility. It's pretty good. I never heard that one before. For me, resilience is grit plus agility multiplied by growth mindset. So that's a formula. Grit. Passion and perseverance for long-term goals, Angela Duckworth. People are familiar with her TED Talk or her book. All right, cool. It's good to have long-term goals and to stick with stuff. And we need agility. We need the ability to be flexible. What we were talking about earlier, hey, are you someone who you just have the routine, you do the same thing every day, you passion, persevere, you keep going? I think that's like a marathon runner. So it's, it's no surprise that the ultra marathon guy would be great on grit and passion and perseverance and the discipline. Me, I'm really good at that agility piece. And I think of it as a yogi. And I'm not great at yoga because my flexibility is terrible. My body, we could talk about that for another podcast another day. But a yogi expands. They create more space. It's about developing a relationship with your mind and your body and an understanding. And so that's the agility piece. And if we multiply that by this idea that we're always trying to learn, grow, get better, develop, adding the yet to things as... Carol Dweck would say in her book Mindset and her work on growth mindset and fixed mindset, then I believe we can be resilient, which is the ability to respond or recover from hard things and, and mistakes and get back at it. And so I love the idea of passion of perseverance. I love the idea of agility, which is this flexibility, and then multiply that by this idea of being a lifelong learner. Then you have someone who's truly resilient. And look at COVID, what we're in right now. There are gritty people who are used to routine and used to doing things a certain way. And they're in a wicked environment and they don't know what the hell to do because they can't go to the gym. They can't go to play basketball on a Wednesday night. They can't do a speaking gig because they're not available. So a wicked environment, which is what, what we're in right now, requires agility. And if you want to be resilient right now, it's not just going to be about putting your head down and persevering. It's actually about creating some space, looking for the possibilities, and being flexible and nimble like a yogi. And so for me, that's why when matters. We have to be cognizant of when we need to leverage our grit, 
when we need to leverage our agility. And I think resilient people actually will leverage both and they'll think about themselves as a lifelong learner. So I know I went on a little bit of a tangent there, but going back to your question, I think that's why being nimble, I think authenticity is not rigid. We have these pieces to ourselves. Too often we say that dude's humble, that dude's arrogant. Well, the truth is the best performers in the world are both. And they, they are being humble and that's being authentic and they're being arrogant and that's also authentic. The issue is when you bring arrogance into preparation and you bring humble into performance. And that's where you see people that are less authentic because they're not actually being true to themselves and what the environment calls for. I'm pausing, man, because it's, uh, it's really well said, man. You know, bend to avoid breaking and grit. I mean, when uh, I thought this pandemic revealed our level of resiliency, our level of mental toughness and grit. Do you agree with that? I think for some, I, I would. I think for people that are losing loved ones or losing their jobs, um, like I have this framework I'm sure you think about it in a similar way for how we heal, handle adversity. I think there are victims, survivors, and thrivers. A victim says, why me? A survivor says it is what it is. And a thriver says, watch this, watch what I'm going to do. There's a time to be a victim and that's okay. Like there, if you lose a loved one or you lose your job, it's okay to say, why me? Like I know people that have lost husbands, you know, wives, siblings during this time and nothing to do with COVID cancer right? People in their thirties and forties, like if they don't weep during that time, that's, that's, that's probably what they need. There's a time to be a why me and that's okay. The issue is when we stay a victim. The issue is when we, we, we never come out of it and that's where you find depression and that's where you find some really tough stuff. So we want to be able to move from victim to survivor. It is what it is. Hey, we're in this thing. It is what it is to eventually find yourself being a thriver. And I know for me, I've had moments of all three during this pandemic. And there have been times where I've been in victim mode and there's times when I've been in survivor mode. There's times when I've been in thriver mode. Um, it's not necessarily good or bad. I think depending on my situation, it's appropriate. And I, I am cognizant of, Hey, I'm, I'm a victim right now, but let's start thinking about how I can become a survivor. And then, all right, I'm in survival mode. Hey, what, are there any opportunities for me to thrive right now? Okay, cool. Let's go do it. And so that to me uh, helps because too many people are going through this pandemic and saying, if you're not learning 10 things and you're not growing and you're not developing, you're doing it wrong. F you. Like you don't know what someone else is going through in their family. A lot of people, their relationships are being challenged right now, uh, personally, professionally. Like this is this is tough. And I don't think it's for any of us to say, what you should or shouldn't be doing. I do think it's up to us to inspire people to thrive. I do think it's up to humans to say, Hey, you're hurting right now, but let's get, let's figure out how we can get to it is what it is survival mode. Uh, and then when you're in survival mode, let's, I think every human wants to flourish. Every human wants to thrive. And I don't think any of us are incapable of doing that. And we should all aspire to thrive uh, at whatever it is that we want to thrive at. Um, so that's how I think about it. Very nice, man. The pieces I look for here are going to be people's worst moments out of this, and it ended up being their best moments. Because mm. I'm, I'm in it for the miracles, man. I'm in it to, to look at those. Because that's what I've always seen. Somebody's worst moment ends up becoming their best moment. 
definitely had clients change jobs during this time. Um, they've had some more space to think about what is it that I really want to do? What's really important to me? I, I've heard from a lot of clients about being with family and the importance of that, whereas maybe they were ripping and running and they weren't slowing down. Um, yeah, I think there's always opportunities in adversity. I, I, I do believe that. Um, and I, I think it's, it's interesting. I'm, I'm definitely making changes in my life through, through this. Um, and, uh, yeah, doing the best I can with what I got. What about the peanut allergies you talked about in your book, man, about experimentation? And I love that chapter you put in there, but, but delve into that. Yeah. So nut allergies are, are fascinating because, um, there was a study that it found, I think 81% reduction in peanut allergies in children who consume peanuts in some form when they were babies compared with those who avoided peanuts. Like, 81% reduction. Uh, so a lot of scientists tie those results to a concept called anti-fragility. Um, and, and this idea that, you know, we, we gain from experiencing things we gain from, you know, adversity and, and we're, we're designed to be resilient as, as humans. So really experimentation and preparation to test, try, um, especially in order to discover that we're prone to something is really important because our immune system needs to be exposed to possible threats in order to understand how to respond to those threats or whether to respond at all. So that is really that idea of anti-fragility and nuts, but you could take it to a different angle, which is an athlete, let's just use golf, needs to experiment with hitting different types of shots and they need to try different types of shots uh, depending on the course that they're playing, uh, the layout of it. Uh, golfers get into trouble. There's literally hazards on the on the course, water, sand, trees, all kinds of stuff. And so if you're not experimenting, you're going to run into trouble. And the challenge with golf for most golfers is that they practice on a driving range that doesn't have any hazards and has a setup that is perfect for them. And so like when I work with golfers, I have them close their eyes. I have them try to hit out of a divot. I have them try to experiment with the wickedness that the sport is. Um, so I think it's up to all of us to constantly experiment. And that's often where some of the best um, innovations occur is through that experimentation phase, that that testing, that trying. And then from there, you can then trust your process, which is like this unquestioned belief and, and resolve in, in how you're showing up in the way in which you're going to show up. And so I think it's, it's just a big piece to the puzzle. If we experiment, then we can trust process. And too often we just say, trust the process. Okay, that's fine. But if you're not experimenting, if you're not innovating in preparation, then you're going to get passed up and, and something's going to move forward because the world evolves, the world innovates, technology evolves. And so we constantly need to be iterating and experimenting. And if we don't, then as a business, for example, you die. If you don't innovate and experiment, you die. And there's tons of businesses over the history of time that don't experiment and they just trust their process and they get passed behind. So that combination of experimenting and preparation and trusting process and performance, it's a cool shift. Uh, I'm glad you brought it up. Yeah. Cause I always think about that in terms of experimentation, like, you know, it was Netflix that went to blockbuster say, Hey, what about this idea? And they laughed him out of the room, man, and said, nah, forget it, man. Like we're blockbuster, you know? And uh, it goes back to that point. You know, what about this one here? So the 2003 NBA draft class. So they say like it was one of the best of all time. I mean, obviously you have uh, the best or one of the best in terms of LeBron James. This 2003. But you used, and, and I'm sure you know this, but 
there's only one other player in the first two rounds that are still in the league. So I mean, if you look at it in terms of just longevity and all the preparation, you have the best man that's still in it in terms of LeBron, and then you got Kyle Korver. That's the only other dude that's like still playing today. And I, you know, I challenge people. I mean, go and look at it. Maybe I'm missing one. I don't think so. But um, you know, I mean, you even had like David West who won NBA championship. I mean, he retired like six, seven years ago, man. But Kyle Korver was into experimentation, wasn't he? I like that. I like that story you're using there. There's one other one, and in fairness to you, he was out in the league the last couple of years, which is Carmelo. And um, so, but Carmelo was out. And he is a Hall of Famer and was out of the league in his early 30s. And I went to Syracuse. I'm the same age as Carmelo. And so I have an affinity for Carmelo. <laughs> I was a freshman when Carmelo was a freshman and Syracuse won a national championship. Huge Carmelo fan. And I would argue that part of the reason Carmelo was out of the league, which he shouldn't have been, I think that was proven in this bu- bubble where he was on Portland and was starting and performing at a high level it was ridiculous that he wasn't in the league but i think part of the reason carmelo wasn't is that he wasn't constantly experimenting and you know he had this great mid-range game and the game was evolving to three-point range and um they needed him to adjust and adapt and become maybe a stretch power forward and learn how to play with others and so without getting too much about carmelo I'd rather focus on Kyle Korver, who I've actually seen up close in person and spent some time with. And Kyle is a guy who, when he retires, can be a head coach or a general manager um, or go into business. He's just an amazing mind. And you look at Kyle, and he um, is obsessed with preparation. And obviously, to become a great shooter, there's a lot that goes into that. But he trains every year. And uh, does this thing called a Misagi, I hope I pronounced that right, where he challenges himself and he goes with a group of guys. And the one that I think I talk about in the book is when they go underwater and they take a big boulder and they pass a, a, thing, a big rock to each other and, and they get to the other side and they work together and it's grueling and difficult. And the idea of Misagi is to challenge yourself and become uncomfortable so that you can then be comfortable when it's time to execute. And so Kyle is somebody who does hard things um, and reminds himself that he does hard things so that when he gets in a game, he is able to let go of that and just be comfortable shooting shots and doing what he does. The other interesting thing about Kyle that's amazing is that he was in his prime of his career when he started to really get traded away because he couldn't defend anybody. And he was such a bad defender that his three-point shooting wasn't making up for his defense. And I saw him experiment and work his ass off and work, 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 work to become a solid defender and not a liability on defense. And he did that in his 30s. So to your point about age, he did that at a time in his career when most athletes are becoming worse defenders. I would make the argument that Kyle, since he turned 30, has become a much better defender than he was in his 20s. And the only way you do that is through the preparation mind of being perfectionistic, analyzing. If you watch him play, he will really focus on what his team is doing defensively and play team defense. And then he doesn't have to be a super athlete, but he's just trying to keep the guy in front of him. Um, so he does things in preparation so that he can perform up to his standards. Um, but he is a fascinating guy because to your point, I think he was a late second round pick. Um, he's certainly, no one would have picked him to be still playing with LeBron. He came from Creighton, a small school. Um, and he's somebody who I think embodies 
the preparation mind and the performance mind. So a really awesome guy, high character, human being. I think he's the son of a pastor. Faith is a big part of his journey. Uh, and he's also been really articulate relating uh, his experience as a white basketball player as it relates to race and racism. He's been pretty outspoken and he's just an incredible human being. And um, I've been fortunate to see him up close and, and get to watch him. And he's also very efficient. He's not one of these guys that gets up a thousand shots a day. He makes sure that the ones that he does get, get up are the right, the right shots so that he practices exactly the way he wants to execute on game day. Awesome, man. I appreciate the Carmelo example. Um, I think he did. I'll put the caveat in there straight through then straight through from 2003. <laughs> that works. Basketball, basketball drafts and me, uh, I had an NBA draft website at one time. And so I'm, it's, it's random knowledge I have for a certain time of, of NBA draft. And, uh, so I, I've corrected people in the past and it's, uh, it's not necessarily a good gift that I have there. It's, I wish my brain would use its energy on some more important things, but, um, yeah, that's, that's a draft that was pretty special. I mean, it was the best of all time though, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, you had Chris Bosh as part of that draft, uh, Wade as part of that draft. Eventually, these guys all played together, which was kind of crazy. Um, but there were, a, I think, maybe Kirk Heinrich and Collison were part of that draft. It was, it was a loaded draft for yep. sure. You, in your book, man, you talk about give to perform better, and I'm, I'm all about like no one gets there alone. But can you expound upon that? Yes, we talked about selfishness earlier as a parent, and this idea of selfish preparation and selfless performance. The great performers make others better. You're mentioning LeBron. I mean, one of the amazing things about LeBron has always been how he makes the teams around him better. It doesn't matter if he's in Cleveland or Miami or L.A. Regardless of what you think about LeBron, as soon as he goes to that team, they become a contender. And he may be bringing other all-stars with him, which is part of it. But the other big part of it is that he passes. He plays team defense. He is he makes the guys around him better, and that to me is the sign of greatness. It's selflessness. It's the ability to pass the ball to a wide open Paxson if you're Michael Jordan, or to Kyrie if you're LeBron, or if you're Magic Johnson finding ways to make others better, or Larry Bird. You can go through, we're using basketball as an example, but anything that I think involves team, the great performers are selfless in their performance. I think the great leaders are selfless in how they're serving others. And look, I can't, I'd be remiss if I didn't bring up, we don't need to talk about politics, but we just watched a debate the other night that was just ridiculous. Um, and show. a clown show, a shit show, whatever phrase you want to use. And it's a shame because the president of the United States, it is the ultimate, it should be the ultimate selfless role. They're literally supposed to be representing the U.S. and the country and being in service to the country. Now, I would argue in order to be selfless, they also have to make sure they're healthy, that they know all the data, that they know all the research, that they know all the information so that they can make decisions on the behalf of our, our country. Um, but I think as it relates to leaders, this is a really big one, which is are you selfish in preparation so that you can serve others and so that you can help others? And I think if you don't take the time to take care of yourself, you don't fill your cup and give the overflows to your your people, you're just on an empty, half empty um, yeah. can. You can't serve them. The old airplane analogy, you know, put your oxygen mask on first and then mm -hmm. you can help others. So that's sort of the idea. I think the great ones are really selfish with how they prepare and then really selfless with how they perform. Brian Levinson, 
your new book, Shift Your Mind. I got one more question for you. What questions should I be asking that I'm not asking? Me specifically or others? Yeah, what question should I be asking you that I'm not asking? One of the questions that I've gotten asked a lot as I've done a bunch of these is what advice, what's the best advice I ever got? So I'll just share that. I had a client once who told me to take care of the marriage first and the kids second. And I always thought that was brilliant. It goes to the selfish and selfless piece. And I think that can relate to a lot of different relationships, which is make sure you're taking care of that first and then the secondary pieces. And I think too often parents are just focused on their kids and not necessarily on their marriage. And I am not a marriage or parent expert, so please don't go to me for this stuff. But I do the best I can. And the advice that that woman gave me was really helpful because for me and my wife, like we are constantly having to bring ourselves back to intentionally take care of each other so that we can have a healthy house for our kids. And I know how hard that is because when you have kids, you start to try to do everything for them. And it's a lot. It's a hard job, hardest job I've ever had. And so I, I guess that would be something that maybe I could leave your listeners with is like, take care of yourselves first, take care of that inner relationship first, the partnership, and then, and then you'll get to those people. And I think a lot of times we do that backwards and I've been guilty of it in the past. And it's something that I'm grateful that I learned and it's something that I try to practice. Love it, Brian. Where do you want people to be able to get the book and, and learn more about you? Get the book anywhere books are sold. Uh, it's called Shift Your Mind. And you just punch in that and my name, Brian Levinson. I'm a big Twitter guy. I know you're a big Twitter guy. I'm at Brian Levinson there. Um, you know, Instagram, I do some stuff there. You can follow me, LinkedIn. I like to be there. But Twitter's like where I like to play. And then our company is called Strong Skills. Uh, you can find us at strongskills.co. That's .co, strongskills.co. And Rob, I want to thank you because I've leaned on you over the years um, for advice and thoughts. And there's one thing that, that stuck, stuck with me. I went and learned, listened to a keynote once and the guy was keynoting and I was on a panel, right? So he had the keynote, I was on a panel and I was grateful to be on a panel and to chat, but I was listening to him on the keynote and in his keynote, he talked about buying Twitter followers and he said, it's marketing. You should buy Twitter followers. People it's people need to believe that you're bigger than you are and it's no different than any marketing that anyone does. And I remember I hit you up and I said, Rob, my gut is telling me that this is off and this isn't trustworthy or authentic and it's not right. It's like low integrity, but this guy's given the keynote and I'm on a panel. Am I missing anything, Rob? And you go, Brian, you're spot on, man do not do that. Like that's not the way to go. I don't recommend doing it. Um, and I appreciate it because I think it's absolutely right. It speaks to your integrity and I'm glad I didn't. The, the last piece I'll say on that is like the process is always more fun than the outcome. And so like that person was talking about process in his keynote, but then was shortcutting the process. And I, that was incongruent for me. And I think authenticity is something I really do value and, and genuine being genuine is important. 
And I appreciate you being genuine with me and being helpful to me and giving me a platform to share some of my thoughts. So just thank you for, for all that you do. That's awesome. I remember that conversation, Brian. That was good, man. Thanks, buddy. Appreciate you, man. We'll put those links in there and, and talk to you soon. All right. Be well, man. Thank you for listening to the Mental Toughness Podcast. If you like what you heard today, please be sure to subscribe to our podcast. You can also check us out on Twitter at Dr. Rob Bell or visit our website at drrobbell.com.